Well, I shared with uh, those of you that were with us last week that I was in Texas with a group of pastors about a week and a half ago. We were part of a cohort that's learning about holistic formation. Essentially, in, in a burnout world, how can our churches be known as places that are committed to inviting God into every aspect of our lives? That, that we would be Christians in body, mind, and spirit with all of our strength. And I'm excited to bring some of this back to you as I'm learning it myself. But this, this last session was on physical formation and how, how the way in which we care for the bodies that God has given us impacts really every aspect of our lives and our leadership. And it was one day just before lunch that they had one of the speakers, it was a doctor, and he was talking about some of the more popular diets that are out there today. And specifically, he was telling us some of the benefits to the ketogenic diet or the keto diet. Has anybody here tried the keto diet? Show of hands. So I know there's more of us. We're just not all brave enough to put our hands up, right? Um, I had not tried it yet, um, but, but it, he made a strong case for it. And so we were listening about it. Basically, it's like like zero carbs almost, and so you're not allowed to eat, you know, bread, pasta, anything delicious um, you're not allowed to have, and so that's, that's the gist that I got from it. So we were done, and that afternoon we went to lunch. Immediately after this presentation, we're staying at a church camp, and so they're cooking for everybody that are there. They don't know what we're learning. We walk in, what are they making us for lunch? It is pasta. <laughs> spaghetti with meatballs, you know, the big kind that they use the breadcrumbs to make, and big pieces of garlic bread. And so all of us pastors walk in, and we look at this, and we've got this moral dilemma, right? And so we all went, and we took, most of us took spaghetti, but we did go to the salad bar line, and we had this kind of collective shame about the situation. And I looked at one of the guys that was standing next to me as we're taking a little bit more salad than we usually do because we feel like that makes up for the two pieces of garlic bread that we all took. And, and I said, you know, I feel like this on Sundays so often. I feel like we go to church and, and we learn from God's word and we boil it down to, to what we walk out thinking this is the way I'm supposed to live and then immediately we get into life and it gets more complicated, doesn't it? We are presented with the moral or spiritual equivalent to spaghetti and meatballs. See, life sometimes is a bit of a contradiction, isn't it? You can't get away from those things. Uh, even our, our phraseology, we use words that are considered oxymorons. There are circumstances that we face in our lives where it's difficult to discern what we're supposed to do. And sometimes it's like there's two very different things going on at the same time. Uh, the word oxymoron is itself a combination of the word oxy, which means sharp, and moros, which means foolish. We've got words in our language language, right? Like, like, like small crowd or old news or only choice or Bears Super Bowl, which I hope is not an oxymoron soon. But I share that because at the beginning of the story of Ruth, this is everywhere. This is really the way in which the story is set. And so we watched a video that gives us just an overview of it. Let's look at verse 1 of Ruth chapter 1. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man from Bethlehem and Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. 
Now, these are the days when the judges ruled. It was a a season in the the nation of Israel that felt hopeless. They were cyclically following this path of destruction and under the weight of their poor choices, and it felt hopeless. And then you got Ruth that comes right after that in our Bible, and it's a story full of hope during a hopeless time. It's hope that should be coming from the nation of Israel that was set apart by God to bring hope to the world. But instead, it is a story of hope that is told through their ancestral relatives and often bitter enemies, the Moabites. This family comes from Bethlehem. The the word Bethlehem literally means house of bread. And yet we learn that they have to leave Bethlehem because there's no bread. There's a famine. Even the names of the characters in the story seem to contradict the details. Elimelech means, my God is king. And yet at the time of the judges, there was no king. Naomi means sweet. And yet by the end of chapter 1, we'll learn that she loses everything and changes her own name to Mara, which means bitter. And so all of this faces us with the question at the very beginning of the story, and that is, where is God when life doesn't make sense? Where is God in the contradictions? And this story is about to present a situation to us that doesn't make sense on the surface. Look at verse 3. Let's continue. Now, Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left with her two sons. They married Moabite women, one named Orpah and the other named Ruth. After they had lived there about ten years, both Malon and Kilion also died, and Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. Naomi, her husband, and their two sons left Bethlehem, the house of bread, because they had nothing, and they went to Moab, and immediately Naomi begins to lose everything. You see what's happening here. First she loses her husband. Then her two sons marry Moabite women, Orpah, not Oprah. You'll be forgiven if you think that's what it is, but it's not Orpah. And then you've got Ruth. And not only do they get married, but they're married for 10 years. And that's a long time. That's a long time today. That was a long time back then. It's also a long time not to have any children of your own. And yet neither couple have a child, and then both sons die, which means the family name will not carry on. And so this whole situation shows us that Naomi may have found bread in Moab, but she literally lost everything else, her husband, her two sons, and the future of the family name. And it just makes me wonder a question. How have you ever chased bread? Have you ever chased bread and lost more than bread. Think about that for a minute. Have you ever chased bread and lost more than bread? You chased after something and ended up losing something greater. And, and, and in this particular instance, right, it's not like they're chasing after a sports car or, or something that seems overtly vain. We can all appreciate the circumstances here. This family was hungry. 
And of course, any family that's hungry is going to consider drastic circumstances, even leaving their home to find food. And yet it brings to mind the fine line that all of us have to walk, especially if we are a part of providing for our own family. You can work hard, right, to provide bread for the table at home. But if you make that effort your ultimate focus, you lose time with the loved ones that you're providing for, and eventually you realize you're giving up the greater thing, right? It's a fine line. It's hard to decide which way do you go. It's the story of Martha and Mary when Jesus comes. Uh, you remember Jesus is talking, right? He comes to rest. He's with Martha and Mary. And Martha's running around and she's doing all the work for everybody. Mary's sitting on the floor being lazy or so it seems listening to Jesus. And so Martha says to Jesus, just like what you would say to Jesus, she says, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do all all the work by myself, tell her to help me. And that's what you would do. And that's what I would do. And Jesus says to her, I love this, Martha, Martha. Like next time you're anxious and angry or you don't understand something, maybe just close your eyes and just imagine Jesus saying your name. That's what he does. Martha, Martha, you are worried and upset about many things, but few things are needed. Actually, only one. Mary has chosen what is better and it will not be taken away from her. Now notice, Jesus doesn't suggest that anything Martha's doing is bad. Her chores are not wrong. They're not sinful. He's not challenging what she's doing. He's challenging her priorities. Work is good, but when Jesus is speaking, you should turn off the vacuum cleaner and listen, right? I mean, that's, that's, that's the point here. Bread, in the story of Ruth, bread is good, but it's not when you're dead. It's no good when you're dead. And that's the tension that we have to live with here in this story. It's a family of four that has left bread. And now three of them, they've left four bread. And now they've gone to a place where three of them had died. Bread is good, but not when you're dead. And yet, even though we know this, right, you didn't need to come to church to hear that, we still instinctively get drawn to prioritize the bread. Everybody does this. It's the same thing in the story here. Look at verse 6. When Naomi heard in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of his people by providing food for them, there's bread in Bethlehem again. So she heard about this, and she and her daughters-in-law prepared to return home from there. When her two daughters-in-law, with her two daughters-in-law, she left the place where she had been living, and they set out on the road that would take them back to the land of Judah. At that time, Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, you go back home, each one of you, to your mother's house. Remember, they're from Moab, not Judah. So you stay here, and may the Lord show you kindness as you have shown kindness to your dead husbands and to me. May the Lord grant that each of you will find rest in the home of another husband. Now, these are logical plans, 
very practical advice from a mother-in-law who genuinely loves her two daughters-in-law. Naomi has heard that the famine in Bethlehem is over. The house of bread has bread again. She's going to go back. But these two young women, Orpah and Ruth, they are still young enough that they can go and get married again. They can find another husband. There's still time to start a family. And we don't know for certain, but if you read between the lines, it's a plausible guess that it might be possible that the reason why these two women did didn't have children is because there was something wrong with their husbands. Their husbands, for some reason, were not able to father children. And so you've got these two women that have the opportunity for a second chance. And this is a second chance that we can't even fathom because to be a woman at this time in history, in this place, and to not be married or not to have a son who's going to take care of you meant that you were destitute and at the mercy of other people. This was their future, and they have an opportunity for a second chance. And so Naomi says, go, go do that. And that's what I would tell if this was my daughter, If this was one of you and you came to me, this is probably the same advice I might give you. And it sounds like that's exactly how the story is going to end. Verse 9, she kissed them goodbye, Naomi did, and they all cried because they love each other. And they said to her, Naomi, we'll go back with you. We'll go to Bethlehem. We'll be there with you with your people. And it's a kind gesture, right? They don't want to leave. They're kind of saying, are you sure? But you've got to start asking some hard questions when your basic needs might not be met. These women are not from Bethlehem in Judah. They're from Moab. And so Naomi makes a very strong case for logic. And there's more than a hint of sarcasm if you're looking at this in your Bible with me. She basically says, you're not going to find someone that wants to marry you in Bethlehem. And so what do you think is going to happen? Do you think that I'm, I'm not even married, but let's just say I am. Are you going to wait for me to have two more children and then wait for those children to grow up and then you're going to marry them? Like, that's just weird. That's impractical. That's ridiculous. You don't have a future where I'm going. Stay home, she says. This is where you will find hope. And in verse 13, she says, No, my daughters, it is more bitter for me than for you because the Lord's hand has turned against me. It's a bit of a pity party, but it's true. It's true. She looks at her situation and says, You guys can start over. I can't. Why don't you go and take the opportunity that I don't have? It's the logical place to go. And it seems like that's where this story is going to end. But if the story followed the lines of logic, let me tell you now, we wouldn't be reading it. We wouldn't be reading it. If you've ever watched a movie or you've read a good story, you've learned that seldom are stories written about people that only color within the lines. And so we look at the next verse, 14. At this they wept aloud again. Then Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye, but Ruth clung to her. Ruth clung to Naomi. Now, the word Orpah means back of neck, and that might sound like it's derogatory, but there's no suggestion that it is. It just describes the reality that she walked away. She went home. And and we can only assume and we can even hope, right, that when she went back home the way that her mother-in-law told her to, we've got to hope that she went and she did indeed get married again. 
and that she had two sons of her own and that she lived happily ever after. We've got to hope that that's what happened, but all we can do is hope because we will never know. And the reason we will never know is because the title of the story is not Orpah, it's Ruth. And the reason it's Ruth is because Ruth didn't leave even though it made perfect sense for her to go. She didn't do it. Look at verse 15. Look, Naomi said, your sister-in-law Orpah, look, she's going back to her people and her gods. Go back with her. And Ruth replies, don't urge me to leave you. Don't turn back. Don't urge me to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God will be my God. Where you die, I will die and there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you from me. And when Naomi realized that Ruth wasn't going to stop talking, (laughs) she stopped urging her. You see that? She still doesn't believe it's the right thing for Ruth, but she realizes there's no, nothing else I can say to convince you otherwise. And so she stopped urging her to stay, and she let her go. The story is titled Ruth, because Ruth embraced the contradiction. Ruth lived the oxymoron. Ruth waded into the tension. Ruth colored outside the lines. Ruth chose what is better. And the invitation to you and to me is to do the same thing. Because see, sometimes it's okay to say no to logic. Sometimes it's okay to say no to that extra work. Sometimes it's okay to say no to bread, not because there's anything wrong with bread, not because you couldn't use a little extra money, but because life is short and life really isn't lived by bread anyway, is it? If you look back at the story of the history of Israel in Deuteronomy 8, you'll read about a time when God actually let Israel go hungry for a season. And, and the purpose behind it was to prove to them that it is God who takes care of us at every turn. Even when we think we're taking care of ourselves, it is God who is providing everything. And so you read in Deuteronomy 8.3, he humbled you. He's speaking to Israel. He humbled you. God did. He allowed you to hunger and fed you with manna, this food that came from from heaven, and you didn't know about that food, neither did your fathers know, but God gave it to you that he might make you know that man shall not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Lord. These are words that Jesus himself would quote when he was being prepared for his earthly ministry, when he was fasting in the wilderness for 40 days. Remember this? After he was baptized, right? He's out in the wilderness and and the devil is tempting him at the end of that time because that's when the devil tempts us, when we're tired and hungry and desperate. And so that's where Jesus is. And one of the things that the devil suggests to Jesus is he says, turn this stone into bread. And what does Jesus say? He doesn't say, I'm not hungry. Because he is hungry. Of course he's hungry. He quotes Deuteronomy 8. He says man does not live by bread alone. And it's not because bread isn't important. It's because sometimes life is more than about bread. Actually, all the time life is more than about bread. See, bread is necessary. It isn't evil. But it's God's own hand that feeds us. Bread itself fuels the life that God has given you to live. And if you make your life about bread, you miss the point. 
And Ruth knows this. Ruth knows this. She's not dumb. She's not pushing against the logic of her mother-in-law. She knows that it would make more sense for her to go and stay in Moab. She doesn't know what her future is going to look like in Bethlehem. All she knows is that even if she dies, even if she dies, it's going to be holding the hand of Naomi, praying to her God, and being buried in her land. That's all she knows. And yet my guess is that there isn't a single one of us here in this room today that don't want to be Ruth in the life of someone else. That there isn't a single one of us in this room that doesn't want a Ruth in our own lives. Of course you want that. Why? Because that's love. And love breaks the rules. And Jesus defines it that way. If you go back to the Gospel of Luke, he tells a parable. You've probably heard this parable before. It's the parable of the Good Samaritan. It says this, on one occasion, an expert of the law stood up to test Jesus and said, Teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said, well, what is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answers, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself, and so he asked Jesus, well, then who is my neighbor? See, he asked, who is my neighbor? You see what's happening there? He's asking a question because he wants to resolve the tension. That's too open-ended. I'm not sure what I'm supposed to do when I'm on a diet and I go before the spaghetti line. I don't know. Am I supposed to take the garlic bread or not, right? I don't know what I'm supposed to do. He wants logic. Tell me how to love so that I can check that box and inherit eternal life. And so Jesus answers his question with a story. He said, here's a story. There was a man that was walking on a road from Jerusalem to Jericho. It's a really dangerous road, if, if you didn't know that. And, and he was attacked by robbers, and they stripped him of his clothes. They beat him, and they went away, leaving him half dead. And a priest happened to be going down the same road. And when he saw the man, he passed by the other side. And then after that, a Levite came, and when he saw, he passed by the other side as well. And so what do you have here is you've got a Jewish man walking down a dangerous road. He gets attacked. He gets left for dead. A priest walks by on the other side. So does a Levite, who is a person who comes from the people that have been set apart by God for religious leadership. So two religious elites walk by the man who's been left for dead. And that sounds rude, doesn't it? And yet you just ask yourself, how many times have you driven by a car on the side of the road that could probably use your help, but you didn't? See, I'm actually not sure how rude this really was if you start to take into account the details. These are two people that have been set apart, and if they were to just, based on the laws that have been built up over time and going back to try to be faithful to God's law, if you touch someone who's bloody, that would make you unclean. And these are leaders especially this priest. He doesn't want to be unclean. Like Orpah and Ruth really had no place in Bethlehem because they are foreigners. These two men had no place helping someone like this man on the side of the road. And so I give them the benefit of the doubt that they were trying to do the right thing. They were trying to follow the rules. They might have even been thinking about the fact that if this guy got ransacked by a robber, right, 
Well, then what do you think happened to those robbers? They might be hanging out behind the same tree right next to that guy. And if I stop and I help him, now there's going to be two guys left half dead on the side of the road. Nobody wants that, right? And so let's just give these guys the benefit of the doubt that they're no different than you and I when we drive by somebody else. And we've all done that. Let's even just assume that they prayed for the guy as they walked by him. Let's just assume all of those things. Verse 33 Jesus says, but a Samaritan, as he traveled by, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him, he bandaged his wounds, he poured oil and wine on him, and then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii, gave it to the innkeeper, and said, look after him, and I'm going to come back, and when I come back, I'll pay the bill if there are any extra expenses you have in caring for this man. A Samaritan came and saved the day. And if you don't know about Samaritans, they were of Jewish descent, but not fully Jewish. And so they were considered by the Jews to be impure. They hated each other. And yet it is an unclean Samaritan who risked his life, paid his own money, and saved the Jewish man on the side of the road. It wasn't the upright priest or the Levite. And so Jesus asks the man who wants to know, what does it look like to love my neighbor? He says, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? And the expert of the law replied, the one who had mercy on him, Jesus told him, go and do likewise. You see what Jesus did here? He said that faith is lived in the contradictions. Faith is lived when things don't make sense. And the reason why is because that's where faith is needed the most. And so what does this look like today? I mean, just think about the fact that we're just so polarized, aren't we? We're so polarized. And polarization is what we're fed each And every day, you've got to be part of the right group. You've got to root for the right team. You've got to believe the right thing. You've got to vote for the right candidate. And so much of that message is rooted in a message that is nothing new, that has been fed into our minds since the very beginning of time. It is a message that suggests to us that if we just eliminate every tension, that if we just eliminate every unanswered question, that if we just get rid of every difference and every contradiction in life, that that will be the solution to all of our problems. And it's the same message that the serpent gave Adam and Eve at the very beginning of time in the garden. This might be the biggest contradiction, not contradiction, but oxymoron that there ever was. God gave them everything in that garden, right? He gave them everything that they needed. It was this beautiful garden that had everything to meet their every need, but in the middle was one tree that they were not allowed to eat from. Remember? There's one tree. And if I was writing the story, and I'm not God, and so I didn't write the story, but, but if, I was, if he had a comment box and I was going to give him just a suggestion on how to do this, which is a ridiculous idea, I hope you're laughing, this is what I would do. If I was writing that story, I would paint that tree that they're not supposed to eat from with a gigantic hole in the middle. I would make that tree look like the kind of tree you call and have a guy come over and take down because it's dangerous and it's going to fall on somebody. I would make like those disgusting vines drooping off of it. I would make rotten fruit hanging off of its branches that are so rotten that even if you were blind, you wouldn't go to that tree because it would smell and you wouldn't go anywhere 
near it. But see, I'm not God, and that's not the story. And see, God's smarter than I am because the things that tempt us are actually rarely ugly to our eyes, aren't they? See, it's called the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It's beautiful. And the fruit is pleasing to the eye, Eve describes as she's looking at it. Not only does it look good, but, but it's so good that after trying some of it, she eats it. Eve says to Adam, you've got to try this. And he knows better. You can read about it in your Bible. He knows he's not supposed to do it, but he does. Just like when I was in Texas, I knew better than to eat the garlic bread. But I ate the garlic bread. And I just learned about all this stuff. Adam ate the fruit, and it was good. And what we learn is that just like coloring outside the lines gets humanity into the mess that we call sin, it will take a God who doesn't color within the lines to bring us back to him. See, Jesus doesn't have to redeem you and me. He didn't have to leave heaven any more than Ruth had to leave Moab. He wanted to. Ruth wanted to. The Samaritan on the road didn't need to save the man. He wanted to. And you know why? Because that's love. And each of those stories reflects God's love for us. It's, it's, it's the words of, of, of the worship song. We're going to sing it as the closer today. Reckless love. And you may know it if you listen to this music. If you worship with us, we sing it pretty often. It goes like this. Oh, the overwhelming, never-ending, reckless love of God. Oh, it chases me down, fights till I'm found, leaves the 99. And I couldn't earn it. I don't deserve it. Still, you give yourself away. Oh, the overwhelming, never-ending, reckless love of God. It's reckless because love is reckless. And the reckless love of Ruth for her mother-in-law, Naomi, will lead her to Bethlehem, where, spoiler alert, if you haven't read the whole story yet, she will get married again. (laughs) She will get married again and have a child, and in so doing, become a descendant of King David, who will become a descendant of King Jesus. King Jesus, who will be born in a manger, where? Do you remember where? Anybody, just say it. Bethlehem, the house of bread. Also that he could later say in John chapter 6, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I give for the life of the world. And it never would have happened if it wasn't for a Moabite woman who refused to follow logic, chose not to leave her mother in law, but to stay and to go where she was called to go. And so may we do the same. And let's pray for the strength and the faith to do that now. Would you join me as we pray? Lord God, I I am just overwhelmed as I read this story of how it doesn't make any sense. There was so much evil and hostility between the people of Israel and the people of Moab. It was from the very beginning born out of conflict and brokenness and horrid sin. 
And that would be the last place in which someone would look for the descendant of the Savior Jesus. And yet that is the way in which you work through each and every one of our lives. You take the broken things. You work in the midst of the contradictions. And you call us to do the same. That it's okay sometimes to defy logic and it's okay to draw outside the lines when it is for the sake of love. And you've loved us in the same way. You are a savior who who didn't have to but chose to because you wanted to leave heaven as Ruth left Moab. And you came to become one of us that you might redeem us. As the story of redemption in this story is about to foreshadow. And so God, as we follow along in this journey of 40 days, may we set this time apart to receive the gift of that love. To see the way in which you have have woven it into our own lives. That we might be able to choose in the way in which you have chosen to love us, to love others as well, with a radical, reckless love that shows them the love of you. It is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.